This live action hybrid is a true piece of Hollywood history, not only for pushing the boundaries of the visual effects and animation techniques of the time to new unbelievable heights, but also for standing as the first and only time some of the most iconic cartoon characters of all time have ever appeared on screen together. This unprecedented time of cooperation and compromise between major studios allowed this adaptation of a neo-noir mystery novel about the murder of a cartoon rabbit to come to fruition when many thought it would be impossible. Who Framed Roger Rabbit finally hit theaters in 1988 after almost a decade of being in production and has been the standard for combining live action and animated elements into one story. It's going to get wacky here today as we ask the question, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? What's It About? I'm your host, Ricardo Boy Diaz. And I'm Seth Crow, And this is the What's It About Film Podcast, a show where two aspiring creatives aim to glean the meaning of it all through the media we consume, holding a mirror up to ourselves and seeing how it reflects in our own lives. Seth, how are you today? I'm all right. I'm all right. Just, just now diving into my coffee, so... Oh, good idea. I should... I don't drink coffee. Do I have a soda around here somewhere? Just a hidden soda? Why don't you drink coffee? Because, look, I'm kind of hyperactive as it is. Throw, throw, throw a bunch of coffee on me. Who knows? All right, Roger. Look what I found. Oh, nice. <laughs> Just stashed away. Yep. <laughs> Emergency stash. Oh, you kind of remind me of Roger Rabbit a little bit. I don't know how to take that. <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I think if you and I had a baby, it would be Roger Rabbit. Well, I don't know. I think it'd probably be a person. It would be. It would come out as a, a rabbit. It would come out. Looking, <laughs> it would be a cartoon. It would. Is it because it's because he's neurotic, but also insane? Yeah, I mean, well, we we got to get into it. We got to get into it. Uh, let's just put it this way: we, Ricky and I, spoke briefly the other night about this movie just for a second before I watched it. And uh, from what I gather, I disagree with him about mm. his take on this film. Uh, so it's going to be, I think it's going to be a good episode. Okay. Oh, well, ha, them fighting words, buddy. Gauntlet's thrown. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about how this film came to be. Well, Seth, why did you pick this film first and foremost? Um, honestly, I uh, it was a gut instinct. I, I was out one night and I saw it on... Uh, the TV at an arcade bar, and I oh. just it clicked. I was just like, "Nah, we have to do this movie. Like, this is this is one of the movies we have to do." Oh, it's it's so, iconic in in yeah. in film history. Like, it is like like I said, it is the gold standard for like these like live action animation hybrids that like the the you know Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Smurfs. Like, I know we're getting uh, Disney Plus is uh, producing a Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers movie that's going to be like this blending of. Kind of almost, I'd say a lot of the same idea where Chip and Dale are the actors from the Rescue Rangers. Like the kid, the actual Chipmunks are played the actors, and then they get looped into an actual mystery. Uh, so huh. it's kind of very Roger Rabbit esque in that way. Yeah. So like this, this movie is, was super influential not only for the the uh, what it did as far as like combining animation and, and live action and the techniques that they pushed. But also, like, for inspiration for the future. Like, for example, yeah. like all the animation in this film was hand was hand painted. Yeah. So they they shot the movie, 
and then they sent the film over to the animators, and they literally painstakingly painted and over every single frame of this movie. Yeah, like I think they said, like the the animation supervisor said, like maybe over a million different different drawings wow. were made for this movie. Like it's so many. It, it it holds up so well too. It does. Like, the animation and the visual effects hold up yeah. so good, so good. And like they, so there was a combination of they had like little. Uh, sometimes they would have somebody somebody do like you know doing the thing, and then they they painted over them. Sometimes they would have like a little like puppeteering thing, or like a little machine do stuff, uh, or like wires and things like that. Yeah. And that's how they got like these characters to be able to interact with things in the real world. Like I think of some of the shots like. Uh, Jessica Rabbit pulling the tie through her fingers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Roger Rabbit grabbing the jacket and, uh, of the director, like pulling it. Uh, and um, uh, of course, like the the octopus bartender with all the glasses and th- like that's for 1988. That is insane. Yeah, insane. Yeah. And like they, uh, so they had done some like live action. A uh, little bit of Hollywood history here. They, have, they had done some live action animation hybrids before Roger Rabbit, but there were some rules that a lot of animators and, and studios would put to make it much easier and way cheaper. Like the rules were uh, don't, no camera movement, lighting had to be very static, and obviously the characters can't interact with anything yeah. <laughs> in the scene. Yeah. Any real world elements, and uh, Richard Williams, who uh, was the animation supervisor for this film, is like, I'm going to break all those rules. This camera's constantly moving around while these tunes are on screen. Uh, the lighting changes, and you can see like the, sh- the shadows move around, and of yeah. course, they're interacting with stuff all the time. So it's it's crazy, like yeah. how how bold this movie was and how it pushed those visual effects boundaries. So like, yeah, it's a good call as far as the movie as a piece of, of cinematic history to definitely talk about and to touch upon for sure. Um, for a second, though, let's talk about how this film came to be and where, where it came from, what it came, uh, how it came about. So this film was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who may be a recognizable name to some people, you know, director of Back to the Future, Romancing, Romancing the Stone, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Use Cars, Contact, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, Polar Express, Beowulf, Flight, The Walk, and Welcome to Marwin. Uh, this one was co-written by the duo of Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, who uh, wrote together Trenchcoat, Doc Hollywood, Will Smith's Wild Wild West, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Jim Carrey one, The Last Holiday, Shrek the Third, and they are currently working on Roger Rabbit 2 which oh. is in development right now, uh, along with a few episodes of Tales from the Crypt and Johnny Bravo. Hmm. So, yeah, these guys are very well established in, in the industry. Oh, lastly, this film is based on the novel by Gary K. Wolf, author of 11 novels, but most famously the novels Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which came out in 1981, which is the basis of this film, and its follow-up installments, Who p- p- Plugged Roger Rabbit in 1991, <laughs> and Who Whacked Roger Rabbit in 2013. Um, so this film originally... Uh, Disney bought the rights to Who Censored Roger Rabbit like immediately following uh, when it was published by G- Gary K. Wolf, uh, and they started developing it. Um, and in that original novel, uh, Eddie Val- Valiant uh, actually solves the murder of the actual Roger Rabbit. The plots are actually very, very distinctly different. Um, 
Disney really only took like basically the base concept idea and then kind of did their own thing. Like the stories are not close hardly at all, mm-hmm. uh, which is very weird. But uh, so they were developing this movie. They purchased the rights in 1981, brought on uh, Price and Seaman to do some drafts. Zemeckis wanted to direct it and asked Disney if he could direct it because I want to hold your hand and use cars were box office bombs. Disney was like, no way. <laughs> so they, they passed on him. Uh, And then between the years of 82 and 85, uh, development of the script kind of fizzled out. Uh, It just was too prohibitively cost prohibitive, uh, and it kind of fizzled out. But then in 1985, brand new Disney CEO Michael Eisner, who some people who know Disney might know, uh, Michael Eisner revamped the project uh, and brought on Steven Spielberg's production company Amblin Entertainment to produce. Uh, And then uh, with the successes of... Uh, Back to the Future and uh, Romancing the Stone. Obviously, Robert Zemeckis was reevaluated and this decided to be the director. Yeah. Uh, the film went went into production initially initially uh, with a projected fifty million dollar budget, which they were able to bring down to thirty million dollars. But wow. then, but then shooting, went, but then shooting went long, and animation took way longer than they expected, uh, and it ended up ballooning to up to seventy million dollars by the oh. end. <laughs> It's a very expensive movie for its time. However, it ended up making about $350 million worldwide upon its original release. And it's probably grossed more since then. Uh, so yeah. pretty financially successful film, especially for the late 80s. It was the second highest grossing movie of the year and top 20 highest grossing movie of all time when it was originally released. So very successful. Uh, and uh, so... There's some other stuff I might touch on a little bit later. Uh, the last thing I want to bring up, there's two le- more things. Uh, this film was nominated for six Oscars, for which it won three. It won Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Film Editing. However, the animation supervisor, Richard Williams, also won a Special Achievement Oscar, which is something that they uh, – it's an award that they create if there's one person in the industry that does something so – phenomenal that there isn't like a category for they create wow. a specific oscar for that one person and so richard williams uh was received the uh, special achievement oscar for his animation supervision of this film new goals is, ricky new goals. i know what is our category gonna be yeah <laughs> that's the question <laughs> uh so i think that's pretty cool and then lastly uh in about 2001 wolf the a writer of the original novel sued Disney over an apparent unpaid royalties. He alleged that they owed him a couple million dollars. Um, Originally, uh, the courts ruled against Wolf, but upon appeal, the courts ruled in favor of Wolf in 2005, but he only ended up receiving between $180,000 to $400,000 in damages. Mm. So kind of a a win-lose. Didn't quite get as much as he had wanted. But, But, you know, He's done well for himself, for his books, and the movie obviously has done well for Disney. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's how this film, up to date, like I said, there's a, a Roger Rabbit sequel in development right now. So we'll see where that goes. So, for those of you out there who have not seen Roger Rabbit in a very long time, it's an older film, we understand. Uh, this is what it's about, or this is what it is. This is what it is. This, this is what is it plot. is. Yes, this is the plot. This is what it is. Get it right, Ricky. I know. My own my own t- category titles. <laughs> my own segment titles. 
So this is what it is. A tune-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of moida. That is what it Moida. is. Thank you, IMDb, for that summary. So, Seth, let's let's ask the question. What's it about? What is it about, huh? Yeah. What's this movie about, huh? I, I let's sit down a, and... I think there's a very clear answer. <laughs> have a drink about what it's about, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, this movie is about the exploitation of innocence. Okay. Continue. I see um, what you're saying, but yes. Uh, this movie is about how Hollywood, um, the bad guys, mm-hmm. uh, the people that want to make money, um, want to destroy uh, innocence for profit. Um, and how that you can use innocence and exploit it to make a profit, but like in the like the judge's sense, he literally wants to destroy innocence to make the ultimate profit or um, to make the way forward, which would be the highway. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, okay. that's what I took. I took, I took how, how innocence and comedy, like innocence, comedy springs forth out of innocence. Mm-hmm. Joy springs forth out of innocence. And, um, and Roger Rabbit is a star. And, uh, yeah. And he is tunes tunes of the talent, and Roger Rabbit is is our protagonist, or is not really our protagonist. He's our he's our tie to the world, mm-hmm. and uh, we're he's kind of like the, Mac- how... the MacGuffin, a yeah. little bit. Yeah, I mean, Valiant is Valiant's our protagonist, I guess, but and, yeah, is... and I guess the the Will's the MacGuffin. Yeah, but yeah, I get yeah. what you're saying. Roger's the catalyst. He's the catalyst, exactly. Roger's yeah. the catalyst, exactly. Um, but to me, to me, it's about Valiant rediscovering his child, child, childlike nature. You mm-hmm. know, it's about him, his, his, you know, his child, inner child has been destroyed, mm-hmm. and he blames the tunes for that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's to look, look like like from the get go, we see Baby Herman, right? Mm-hmm. And Baby Herman is uh, is this cigar smoking baby, you know, and it's like hey, he's toots. still man- <laughs> hey, he's st- he's maintained his innocence in look, and he can still portray it. But like this guy, uh, he probably does a lot of blow, pays for hookers, like he's uh he's a he's a screwed up baby, um, which I think is a really good <laughs> metaphor for for Hollywood. You know how how people end up. Okay, so for me, there there there's maybe a a a, dis, a dispute here because I don't I wouldn't say the tunes are one hundred percent innocent. You know, because I feel like that takes a, a little bit of agency away from the tunes because in this world they're they're people like they're fully sentient like they're yeah. they're subject to the law, so they are full like people. So like. By saying like they're just pure innocent, like they are, they can commit crimes. They can, you know, like you talk about Baby Herman. Baby Herman's a little, like a little bit on the edge there yeah. of like what's maybe acceptable and appropriate. 
Um, yeah. And and so and like these tunes are shown to be doing some CD CD stuff sometimes. So it's like, are they innocent? I think they're just people. I wouldn't say they're. It, it, I would say a lot of tunes are innocent. Particularly, I think Roger is very innocent. I yeah. think. And then, or like, like we see Daffy Duck and Donald Duck in that like dueling piano scene. They're kind of a- assholes. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're like not nice. <laughs> well, maybe innocence not the right word. Maybe it's um, in touch with their inner child. Well, which... I think I think you you hit you hit something. Well, yes, loon like looniness and tuniness. Yeah, is is a, I would say a sense of play yeah. that that tunes have that a lot of humans don't have. That's yeah. very fair. I I think the word the, the operative word. That I would go with with yours is exploit. Ex- yeah. it, it, this film is exploitative, right? It's what it. I, what for me, it, what it clearly is is angrily towards is a, an is a analogy to racism, especially in the nineteen forties. Mm. Okay. So, so like very clearly, the tunes are representing the African American community in that way. Gotcha. Where. In the 40s, like there was still so much racism going on. Uh, to give a little context of what was going on, specifically in 1947, uh, there were things like Jackie Robinson joining the the Brooklyn the Brooklyn Dodgers at that time. So like uh, there was McCarthyism. There was the beginning of the Cold War. Like there was a lot of othering going on at that time here yeah. in the states and internationally. So like I think this film, which was made in the 80s, is going back to the 40s because of what of the racism. That was and the and like I said, the othering and the the inherent distrust of people with like McCarthyism and communism and things like that. Uh, just that era naturally had. So in those days, there were you know there were African American actors, there were African American athletes, there were African American entertainers, uh, and there's you know you watch a lot and you hear documentaries and you read histories and biographies about those entertainers how they would travel around the country to entertain people and like they, they wouldn't be allowed in like hotels because they were because they were black they wouldn't be able to stay at the hotels that like other people in the band were able to stay and all that stuff right they're yeah. purely for the entertainment they're being exploited they'll as uh RK Maroon says they best thing is they work for peanuts like they can yeah, 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 yeah. they can, they're cheap and you can exploit them because they're yeah. tunes. They're second-class citizens, you know? Uh, and I think it comes through even more so with, like, uh, the Ink and Paint Club. So the Ink and Paint Club is kind of an an homage to the Harlem Cotton Club. Yeah, yeah. Which very, very, like, well-known for at that time was only served white people it, as right. patrons. Would only let African-Americans in if they worked there or if they were the entertainment. Which, when you look at it, that's the only tunes that are in that Ink and Paint Club are either on stage or they're serving, you yeah. know. Which and so like, that's like my favorite scene. Oh, it's amazing! It's an amazing that scene. So awesome! It's so good. And so I think this film is very clearly trying to draw a parallel between tunes and African Americans. Uh, that's ac- I would say that's accurate, and I'm not I'm not disputing that. Oh no, I know, I know. Um, but I think the idea of exploitation is definitely what this movie. I think on in a if I was gonna go macro, that's what I would say. It's like it's about racism, it's about prejudice, it's about exploiting a, a sec a lower class. For example, like Judge Doom at the scene of 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 uh, Acme's death uh, finds that shoe, just an innocent little tune shoe, Dude, didn't commit any crimes. The worst. 
He literally murders that shoe in front of the police and no one does anything. So that's where I find this, this movie genius. That's Mm -hmm. like, that scene is freaking genius because it's like, like I had to hug my dog after I watched that, you know, it's so sad. That poor little shoe. Like in, in it evokes. So like, I think that's very, what's something that's very fascinating. and, And I don't know, in the peripheries of what this movie's about, like mm-hmm. the fact that the idea of something is important. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the idea that it, something evokes can be as real as seeing the actual thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like us watching this poor shoe, you know, mm-hmm. lose its soul is like the worst. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and it this, and yeah, and I think what makes it worse is so, and again, this I think is a, a why it parallels racism so well. It's like think about how African Americans historically are subjected to the law, but are not protected by the law. Right, and it's it's the same thing with this shoe. This shoe, you know, Judge Doom's whole thing is he's like, I I enforce the law in Toontown. I enforce the law for tunes. Uh, uh. But here's the thing: that shoe didn't break any laws. That shoe was just there, yeah, like that shoe didn't yeah. didn't didn't break the law. And so he just straight up murdered this sentient thing, which, like, if you want to say, like, all tunes are are sentient. You know, they all have agency. They all have a consciousness of their existence. Yeah. Right. They're not animals in that way. Right. You know, they they're very conscious of the fact that they are living, thinking feeling things. And so the shoe just gets murked and the police are staring right at it. Like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. It's like, okay, that's just a tune. Who cares? Like, and for me, that's very infuriating to me, um, which is some bullshit. (laughs) It's like, it's like a, it's a visceral moment that Mm -hmm. you remember forever. You know, it's like, how could he do like, that's just horrible horrible yeah like like i mean we we see him use the dip a lot Mm -hmm. or try to but but like actually seeing that shoe go in is like like the slow way he does it yeah yeah it's like it's like child like childhood trauma yeah remembering that yeah no it is like if he had to like like just drop the shoe in and it like fell in and like disappeared and you could like hear it like bubbling in there that'd be one thing but it's the way he slowly dips it and it's like screaming and crying and like looking up at him as it's like dissolving it's like that is horrifying yeah horrifying brutal um and and for me why are you doing it to us Doc Brown, Marty, <laughs> Marty, it's the tunes. <laughs> we have to go back. And, and for me, this this movie, the heart of this movie, starts after we get that like nice cold open where they're shooting the shooting the hermit uh, the Herman baby Herman uh, uh, sketch. The shooting the baby Herman short, uh, and uh, we meet Eddie Valiant in. Uh, RK Maroon's office where he's asking him to go and spy on Disco Rabbit and he's like he's talking about how Roger's falling apart right and uh, he's like well like maybe you've dropped one too many refrigerators on his head and he's like oh no 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 he's a two you can drop anything you want on his head and he'll shake it right off Uh, he's like but break his heart 
he'll fall he falls to pieces just like you or me. Yeah. So it's this idea of I, I agree with you. It's about broken a, a broken. It's all about being broken, right? So I want to clarify what I kind of said at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, I I what Ricky said the other night was that he did not enjoy it as much this time this time around, mm-hmm. and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I remember watching it as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think. I mean, I think this movie is very jazz-like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like the op- it opens with jazz playing, mm-hmm. um, and there's just like there's a lot going on, mm-hmm. and there's so much metaphor, mm-hmm. and so for me, I, I I I could care less about the story structure, like, like I could care less about. The- it wasn't about the structure because the structure is fine. It's for me, it's about the pacing. I think it drags in the middle a little bit. Yeah. Um, to where like. I think this movie probably could have been like maybe like 10 to 15 minutes shorter, which it's not that long. It's only like an hour, 40 minutes. I think it could have been shorter. I think there was, there was a lot of drawing out of stuff that, that was kind of, I started to lose interest a little bit. Um, So you're saying like when he goes into the Toontown? There was some of the, yeah, there was like a lot of like that where like he like he's like going through the like the building and like running away from the uh Lena Hyena uh yeah. weirdo. Like that that was a man. Yeah, like a lot of that was like <laughs> this is like the like the like where things are supposed to like really start to get more intense here and it's like very much like a non an, an inconsequential segment like of like uh, 15 minutes. Yeah, but at the I same get that time, it's supposed to be you're in Toontown and it's supposed to be I understand it's the why. Climax. Yes. I understand why, but for me, like, there were just a lot of, like, little stuff like that where I was like, this is being a little bit more drawn out than it needs to be. I mean, you don't need to see Donald and Mickey, but, like... Well, that was, that was in the contract. They had to, they had to appear on screen, they had to appear on screen together. That's where this movie gets meta and cool, you know? Like, like, to me, when, when that scene where we see Donald and Mickey, like, there's so much going on there, Mm -hmm. really. You know, oh yeah, like, like the way that they are portrayed and the way they interact with each other, there's like so much being said. You mm-hmm. know? Like, well, I I don't. They could have. Been, I'm just saying they could have been used in a different way that I think yeah. was would still flow better. It just felt like a, such a detour from what was going on for for not yeah. not a lot of reason other than to shoehorn in more jokes. And I just don't think that's good. That's that's you know I just don't think that's great writing. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. Throws it. Off I mean, the, it throws off the pace for me. And not to mention, like, that whole, like, last fight scene is so long and so is, drawn yeah. out. I'm like, this fight scene is really long, this end, yeah. this finale fight. And, like, it's a little – it's not that exciting. Right. <laughs> so, like, that's I mean, what I mean. I think, I think that's for the kids, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this movie had to be at least accessible for – a childhood audience too, because it is a, a tune film. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, why. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I said like, I, I enjoy it a little less now than I do then because I, you know, to be, to be a little sad about it. I'm an older person than when the last time I saw yeah. it. And so now I, I think I, I'm looking for something else in my movies. But that's why Jessica's there, bro. That's why Jessica's there. <laughs> we'll get to Jessica. <laughs> we'll get to Jessica. <laughs> like, I mean, but seriously, like, like, that, like, I, 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 
there's just so much so many little things in this movie and then like mm. just one-liners and like things that were said that i'm just like man that's brilliant and oh like, no the a lot of the writing's really really good don't get me wrong like i said it just comes down to the pacing for me i think that the the second half of this movie is just not paced very well it, i'm not saying it's a bad movie i still like it it just wasn't as as like high energy as I remembered it being, you know, I remembered it being yeah. just completely insane and it's like, it is, but it isn't, you know what I mean? It's like silly, but it's not really that high it's energy not, at the end. It's Roger Rabbit. It's not bonkers. Do you remember bonkers? Well, it's so funny you bring up bonkers because <laughs> it was, I, and I love bonkers. I know you've called me bonkers before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Seth has compared me to bonkers. Uh, if you guys yeah. don't know bonkers, bonkers was a, a Disney cartoon that they created. What's funny was, they wanted to do a Roger Rabbit show, but couldn't get the rights to Roger Rabbit. Disney themselves, like yeah. the rights were too tied up as to who owned Roger Rabbit, and 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 with obviously with Gary K. Wolf, like doing a show with Roger Rabbit was was tough. So what happened was they made a character that was basically Roger Rabbit, <laughs> and made yeah. a show about that. Uh, Bonkers. And so Bonkers is is a, an iteration, a derivative of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. So it, it was a lot more kooky. Oh, for sure. I mean, it was for, definitely it was for a younger all, audience. It was all tunes. It all was tunes. tunes. Well, te- technically, it was a cartoon, but there were tunes and humans in like the whole. It's hard to explain. The whole yeah. show itself was hand animated, but in the world of the show, there were tunes, and then there were real life humans. Weird. Who? Yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird extra layer of like what? Yeah. <laughs> these these humans think they're humans, but they're actually cartoons in the meta. It's weird. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I totally get what you're saying. Bonkers was made, also made for a younger audience. It was made to be way wackier, way sillier, way more like ADHD <laughs> um, than this movie is, and I totally understand that. And like I said, for me, it was basically just like my like writer brain, which now that I have and it's impossible to like shut off, was like the pacing in this back half is a little is a little slow. Um, yeah, it could, I, and it, that's, it could be faster. And that's where I I just disagree. I think. And that's fair. I, this is a perfectly – this is an opinion. This is an opinion thing. Yeah. Like um, for me, this movie is – like I said, it's more jazz driven. Like like it's more jazz and it's mm-hmm. – like it does have like a, a loose – like a, a like pillars. Mm-hmm. But like the moment to moment, it's it's all jazz, baby. Like yeah. it's just like enjoying enjoying the emotional quality of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, like little things. Like I, I, I loved all the LA-isms, you mm-hmm. know, that were that were in the film. Um, like, and like, even like the little timestamps, you know, like, uh, when he gets on the, when he gets on the red line, who needs a car in LA? And, and, and then he's like, thanks for the cigarettes, kid. You know, just like little stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, what else? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said the cab says like, um, something about the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's like, you hear about the Brooklyn Dodgers? Uh, because they're not in LA yet, so mm-hmm. just, just little, little, little subtle details. Well, there um, you go. There's another. There's another allusion to the fact that this may be a little bit about racism. Is talking yeah. about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, you I mean, because they I, might, I mean, they might have been on the precipice of signing Jackie Robinson at that yeah. point, depending on when I mean, this movie is set in the year. You're a hundred percent right about the racism stuff on a like a straight. That's what I was level. saying on the macro level. This it's very clearly about that. How, but on the micro level, the emotional, personal level. That's what I – because 
I think this movie has been analyzed in that way before. And so, like, I just want to put that out there as, like, of course, this film is about racism. It is about internalized racism, specifically with the two. We're going to have to figure out a way to categorize this stuff better. Because Mm -hmm. when I say macro, I don't think, I think what you're saying is, yes, to a degree, that's macro. Like, I I guess. Societal level. On a societal level. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. A socio, yeah, a socio level. that is what it's about. It is about race. Yeah. It is very clearly about racism. It's mostly about racism. Yeah. Like that's but the bigger, a, that's the bigger capital I issue in this film. But what is the, what's on the personal level is what we want to get more into. Maybe, but it's, it's also like, yes, racism is what was going on. Yes. Racism. Like clearly the writers had that in mind while they were writing. However, I don't think that that's the biggest layer because because race doesn't matter in terms of like human experience. Mm-hmm. So like exploitation of the innocent is not just a racial thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like and, and the exploitation of the innocent is still happening in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the nature of of the business. And mm-hmm. um, and so like. So, so I think we should turn it, if I were going to turn it to an angle, like, let's think about, I mean, it happens to be personal mm-hmm. for me, but like, like Valiant was a clown. I, yeah, I was going to bring that up in a little bit. Yeah. And which uh, is like the closest thing a human can be to a tune. Yeah. Which for me, was almost like just to jump, jump back just a little bit, but then move forward, which almost, is that kind of like a mixed race type of thing? Could, could like be. that be like, he's, he's mixed. But this He's is why the I think tuniest person but, you can be. But that's why I'm saying it's bigger than race. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, like it's it has to do with something that's in all of us that uh, you that we all can access, but not all of us do. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like it's part of the human spirit. You know, it's part of it's part like every kid can it, it is kind of toony. You know. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and what happens is, is like, that's, that's, that's like those talents. That's those like tunes as talent. Like those are those things that we can market and make, if we can figure out how to hone it, we can make it, make us money. You know, that's what people want to see. They want to get back to that child feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so like Hollywood takes these things, exploits them, which actually destroys them. But somehow, like, I think Roger Rabbit is a great allegory for, uh, uh, like, Jim Carrey. You know, Mm. like, Jim Carrey is very much a Roger Rabbit type. Like, he somehow maintained this childlike innocence, but he's also, like, like, there's something about him that is mysterious and dark. And, like, like, he's seen things. You know, he's seen things and he's not um, all there, you know, Mm. and like for a guy like Roger to be with a gal like Jessica, there's also some other stuff going on there. What do you mean? Like Roger's a star, (laughs) right? He's a huge celebrity, right? But he's it's it's Jessica is not the. Jessica's a lot different than Roger. 
in a lot of ways. <laughs> Opposites attract, my man. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like. It's a little. There's there is a darkness to Roger Rabbit. Oh, for right? sure. But yeah. there is a funny line in there where uh, you know where Eddie first sees Jessica Rabbit and he's talking to Betty Boop, uh, and he says she's married to Roger Rabbit, and Betty Boop says, "Yeah, what a lucky Goyle." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's because like Roger's the star. Roger's the celebrity. Yeah. She is is this lounge singer. She like she she's you know she's like on the low level of entertainment where he's like yeah. on the upper echelon of celebrity. So like to the tunes, she's the lucky one. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird because all the I think every all the humans are like, look at this hot cartoon. Character. We gotta we gotta talk about Jessica. We got let's talk, talk about, about Jessica Rabbit. Well, this is the Jessica yeah. Ragman se- Rabbit segment, everybody. If you're triggered. The trigger warning, we are talking about an attractive cartoon. She's an adult. <laughs> she is an adult. Are we allowed to sexualize a cartoon? I mean, it's frowned The cartoon was, he's saying, the cartoon was specifically designed to be sexualized. Yes. Yes. I agree. And, I mean, not going to lie, I... I would do awful, dirty things to that cartoon. Many like a child, many a young, many a young uh, developing mind had their sexual awakening with Jessica Rabbit. Yes, in the 80s. one of my first times in my life I felt uh, sexual desire was for Jessica Rabbit. I mean, it's just like I feel like you're not alone in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like whoa. You you look at that cartoon, which is amazing, right? Like, mm. is that not incredible? That it's, well, they, it's... they, they. I'm sure they worked very hard on her design because that is again that is a character that was written in the novel, so never it had an actual like visual counterpart until this movie. So they completely got to design her from the ground up. So I'm sure that was yeah. very much like test, like like. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Screen tested, yeah. you know, audience tested. I'm sure they. They really, really worked on that design to make it as effective as it is. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, that, like it's just another example that the idea is more important than the real, the reality. You I'm know? not like, bad. I'm just drawn that way. I'm just drawn <laughs> that way. He makes me laugh. I mean, that's. I mean, that's really the key, right? And like that's, mm-hmm. and that's like that, that line and uh, one Roger says. My whole life is is devoted to making other people happy, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's where I I find this movie fascinating and, like, what it's – why it's so easy to exploit, you know? And, like, what what – like, being a clown, there's something about being a clown where you get your value by the experiences of others. And and it's not just, like – it's not just laughter. It's just like your whole being needs the other person to mm-hmm. be happy. Right. And, and by putting on the makeup, you're allowed to access different emotions to utilize, to make mm-hmm. the other person feel things, you know? And, uh, yeah, but, but that, like, but that's the thing is like, if there, that person isn't able to do that or, or, uh, they're put in a position where they're not allowed to perform. Like it's really, really hard on them. 
you know, mm. like Ro- Robin Williams, you know, like, uh, like, and there's so many of, of these, like people that are performers that need the extra, like so badly need the external approval of others to keep fueling them, you know? Mm. And it's like a, it's a clown problem, but it's like, it's like that, but that thing that the clowns have is like, is that innocence that we all want to be able to access, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, Seth, if you could, if you don't, if you don't mind, um, could you share some of your experiences uh, personally uh, from your clowning days uh, for our, our audience that may not know, Seth has, has delved into the world of, of clowning uh, on a semi-professional level. Um, yeah. So, well, you gotten paid for it here and there. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it was a hobby, but I'm, I, I think I'm a natural at it. Uh, I, I thought I'm, you were a very good clown. I'm a tune, you know, like mm-hmm. I got a, I got a tune in me. And uh, so if you, if you, if you feel comfortable uh, yeah. sharing your, your experiences clowning and how, how that's helping you kind of relate to specifically, yeah. it seems like, cause I, you're relating to the tunes more in this movie. It sounds like, and, and even so like an extension of the humans being the clown of being like Eddie and his brother coming from clowns. So if you, could yeah kind of that seems like what you're latching on to yeah. um so if you could share your experience your experiences uh as uh you're you've delved into clowning yeah um well so i started clowning so i'm a you know i i, I took theater like i was a, a theater major and then i was in chicago doing improvisation and comedy and uh i was very like it all stemmed from not being allowed to perform, right? Like um, Ricky and I were kind of misfits for a little bit in Chicago and we wanted to be on the stages doing the comedy, but the gatekeepers wouldn't let us, you know? And so I, at the time, was I was going through a really rough time in my life and like that was my outlet, you know, was being able to perform. And... Uh, I just decided one day I was like, screw that. Like I can perform anywhere, you know? So I went and I bought a nose and some paint and made a clown and no joke. I went out like two days in a row and just like was a goofball in public in Chicago. And it was some of the best days I had in Chicago. Like it was like, a blast you know and like kids loved it like one guy asked me to go inside to his boss and like pretend i was like applying for a job like i mean like all of these like crazy things happened in these two days i got i went into i went to the park and these kids started like like literally pretending to kill me shooting me with fake guns like stabbing me and just like i I mean they were they were like swarming me attacking me Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, I, like, I, I just fell in love with it. Like, it was awesome. And I did that for, like, a, a little bit. And then, and then like, the, cosmically, right as I started, like, discovering I could do this, uh, all of these bad actors, all of these bad acting clowns started coming out of the woodworks. 
and like literally people would just dress up like clowns to be scary and mm. stand places and i'm like what the like how to you know and i was like i was like the most innocent clown you could be you know like i was like legit real doing it and suddenly uh they're evil and so i had to stop like i mean my mom was legitimately afraid i was gonna get shot yeah and yeah so time i think people for, forget about that that time in our recent history of like this like evil clown fad where people would dress up as really really horrifying clowns and would like not just stand in places would like chase people you know, like, do you remember that? There were all those videos yeah. of like, yeah. they'll just like be standing there and then they'll just take off and like sprint at people. Like yeah. that was a weird time in our recent history where like it was a, it was a, such a fad to do that. And like, it was like supposed to be entertainment in a sick way, but like, it was like very tra- traumatizing and like honestly dangerous behavior for a lot of people. Yeah. You know? And and that's and that's what's so screwed up about making clowns scary is because clowns are are innocent, right? And so like to take something that is pure and make it corrupt is like it's like doing the same thing to a child, you know? Like mm-hmm. it's it's an image of the most horrific. That's why so many people are scared of clowns. Mm-hmm. Because when you see a real clown, you're supposed to see something human. You're supposed to see something in that clown that you see in yourself. It's just hyperbolized, mm-hmm. you know? And so like to take it and take it to the dark place with them is screwed up. It's really screwed up. I mean, it works well for horror movies, but like poor, I mean, like the people that are clowns in real life, you can't be a clown anymore. Like it's not okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it's like one of the best ways to, access access parts of your personality that you can't normally access and it's screwed up that uh if you put on clown makeup you're immediately labeled a freak which is like very like classic you know like it's just like it's like this wild loop of mm-hmm. of, of what it means to to be funny you know mm-hmm. well i think there's uh, to, to your point there is a there's a trend, not a trend per se, but there is definitely a, a technique in horror in particular of taking things that are innocent and making them scary. Children, yeah. babies, dolls, clowns. Yeah. There's a long history of taking things that are supposed to be innocent, supposed to be safe, and making them unsafe. Yeah. Like, it, it, and, and to, again, to your point, it's an exploitative thing. We're exploiting yeah. the fact that these things are meant and associated with being safe. We are now making you feel unsafe for trusting that thing, trusting that doll, trusting that child, trusting that baby, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, yeah. it's a very effective way of psychologically flipping a switch for people. And that's why those things are so scary in those movies and things like that and those stories or, you know, like Cujo, dogs. People love dogs. Immediately, as soon as you take a dog and you make it scary, it flips a switch in your head of immediately making you uneasy because yeah. it's something that you associate with something you love, something that's safe, something that's kind, something that's innocent and making and back, it and back to the dangerous. Back to the like idea of things, right? Like It's the idea of fear that's actually 
worse, you know, like mm-hmm. most dogs are fine. Most mm-hmm. dogs are fine. But the thing about dogs is they can smell fear. So like, mm-hmm. if you're afraid around a dog, the dog is more likely to react, mm-hmm. you know, isn't that, isn't that strange? Mm-hmm. So it's like, so like what we've done is like, like clowns, clowns were meant to be good. And then we've instilled this fear of clowns and it's taken over, mm-hmm. which, I mean, that's very transferable to race, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I mean, with black people in this country, like they're just people, you mm-hmm. know, and then we've instilled an idea of fear mm-hmm. into our culture of black people. And then now it's full blown racism and Mm -hmm. we're still dealing with it, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. So there is a, there is a, a a social term called othering and othering is creating a separate category for, for a particular group where you, it makes it much easier to dehumanize them and to strip them of their, their label as being people. And it's an effect. It's a super effective way of, you know, cr- creating a, a superiority. So, like the Nazis did this with with, with Jewish people. Uh, you know, our country has a history of doing this with African Americans, making them dehumanizing them by pointing out and highlighting certain traits, quote unquote, uh, and basically saying that they don't they don't deserve to be treated as as humans because of because of this, creating a separate category for them. Uh, and this film does that with the tunes. There's a lot of yeah. othering of the tunes. They're not people. They're oh, I don't. You know, Eddie has this whole thing. I don't work for tunes and and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's definitely. And there is a lot of inherent racism here in that, uh, in an internalized racism of the tunes, uh, specifically with Jessica Rabbit. Um, you know, I'm not. I know how everybody sees me. I know how I move through the world and how I'm perceived. I'm not bad. Like, I'm not that. I just just how I was made. You know. Yeah. Like. And, and her, that internalized, like, her saying that almost is like her almost believing that she is bad, you know, that she is, at least in some part, not broken in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I love what you were saying about this idea of, like, corruption of this innocent thing. And for me, this is this is where my interpretation of the film really comes into play because it's I see it mirrored in Roger and Eddie. So I see it mirrored in both the – Toon world and the human world as, as as something that's goes in line and is that goes back to that line that RK Moon says of of tunes can do this you can abuse tunes all you want they they can't die they don't they you know they're they'll shake it off they'll be fine like we can do whatever we want to them they're fine but you break you break a tune's heart and they fall to pieces just like you and me yeah. so there is like they even though there's all this othering there is this idea of but we both, but both tunes and humans, we both have a heart. We both yeah. have a soul. And it, it's very susceptible to being broken. And that's why I think it's important to acknowledge the racism, but also just say, like, get beyond that in mm-hmm. conversation. Because, like, acknowledging racism is important, mm-hmm. but what we need to get to is acknowledgement of the other and acknowledgement of the humanness of everybody, right. you know? Like in this everybody. film, the tunes are basically humans. They're pe- they're people, 
every for even if it's a shoe, even if it's an instrument, even if it's a broom, it's it's a thinking, feeling. Yes, they know they they're people. Yeah, yeah. And and they all have hearts. They all and we even see even the weasels. They have souls. <laughs> you know, we see their yeah. literally. We see their souls uh, leave their bodies. So like they literally have. It's confirmed in this world that tunes have souls. Uh, it's, that that moment's interesting, and they kill them with laughter. They set that up way in the early in the yeah. movie too. You yeah. one day you'll die laughing. Remember what happened to your cousin and your brother. <laughs> well, what's funny? I mean, so this is like kind of related, but like in comedy, when we talk about you kill, yeah, you kill, you kill, or you go on stage and you murder, mm-hmm. which is weird, right? Like, mm-hmm. why is that the language that's used? I don't know. You know, I've never looked you know? into the the etymology of that phrase. To be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Just, it's, I mean, to me that that's that is the the duality of the clown, right? Maybe like, honestly, does it go back to like? Does it go back to like clowning and like mime in some way? Like, was it like a tradition in clowning? Like, like the clown, like you know, because clowns like are very slapsticky, so they take a lot of like abuse and stuff like that. So like, if like you really like, was there like a time where like like the tradition was that the like, clown like dies at the end or something like that, and that's like the the way the clown dies is like the funny thing, and so like you killed. Is like oh the audience loved it because because you like you you, you hit you hit it you hit your 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 beat. I mean, and I don't, I don't know, know I don't know where it comes from, but it's it is strange, right? It is. Like that we this this profession that is meant to make people happy uses uses language that's very so violent. it's violent. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's yeah, weird. um, so. I want to circle back to this idea of of, of broken hearts because you're right. Let's move past the racism part because I think that is very well, very clear. And so for me, because we we haven't talked a lot about we've talked so much about the tunes and Roger in particular because that is like the hook of this film is is the tunes right. That's the hook. But let's talk about what is actually at the center of this film. Who who are we actually following through this film? And that's our our private investigator, Eddie Valiant. Our PI. Our PI. So Eddie, it, formerly a detective of the LAPD, now a a, a a private investigator. An alcoholic private investigator. Alcoholic. He is broken. We see that he is very much an unhappy, cantankerous kind of fella. Um, and we learn it's because his brother, who was his partner uh, at his their firm, was killed by a tune. They don't say exactly how long ago, but a handful a handful of years at, at the minimum. Uh, so his brother was killed by a tune and broke his heart, right? Kind of like, you know, Roger can't function if his heart's broken. Like, Eddie can't function because his heart's broken. Yeah. His his business is falling apart. He has no money. He's, he's fallen into alcoholism. Eddie is, is broken. And he can't function. He can't. And, and there are even moments where, like, where Dolores, where who uh, is the bartender at that bar that he goes to, that's right across the street from his office. Um, they very clearly have a romantic history. Yeah. And but when we meet them in in the movie, their relationship is super duper strained, very very estranged. Um, and there's a moment where she's. She's handing him the camera, talking about this trip that they took, this vacation they took together. Uh, 
and she's you can tell she's very heartbroken that like things have fizzled since then or like you know it, they're not where they were then and the yeah. tra- a train car goes by at that time the whole bar shakes which i think is like an indication of how unsteady eddie's personal relationships are yeah. like he has none the one person that he loves in the world is like it's like very uneasy you know um and so I think there's that parallel of, between Roger and, and Eddie of like this idea of like if your heart's broken, you can't function. Like yeah. you, sometimes the worst pain in the world is a broken heart. You can drop you can drop a, a refrigerator on somebody's head. You can you can smack them in the face with a with a with a pot. Uh, or you can s- slam their head in a door. But sometimes nothing hurts worse than a broken heart. Because that sure. lingers, uh, and and we do see, and it, it, I think you can't you can't separate this from Eddie's journey is the fact that because a tune killed Eddie's brother, he has a huge prejudice against all tunes. Yeah, and it's it's a fracturing because again, like you said, he was a clown. He comes from a clown lineage, so yeah. there is a tuniness to his who he really is that is fractured when when he kind of like says like tunes are bad that's a part of him that he's saying is bad in a way and throughout the film we see all these tunes these innocent tunes who just want to help who just want to make people laugh who have honestly have the best intentions for each other uh help heal eddie over time um and he slowly starts to open up because of roger's assuredness and innocence and love of his wife yeah. despite all the evidence still trusts despite, her despite the patty cake patty cake patty cake <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> roger's pretty great in this movie so i had a lot of trouble boiling down exactly what like a concrete message of this film is I mean, it's very. I think it's it is very like simplified in that, like yeah, like laughter and love and kindness, like the way that tunes shine in that way and glow, like that's the way to move through the world, kind of thing. That's gonna laughter and Roger has this line at right around the midpoint of the of the movie, which if for anybody who's trying to learn how to like analyze film and stuff like that, there are specific places you can look in a movie where like themes get highlighted a little bit more overtly. And the midpoint, the very middle of the film is one of them. At the round, right around the midpoint, when Roger's being hidden in that back room, that that back cellar at the bar, he says to Eddie that laughter is one of our greatest weapons yeah. in life. Right? Like, <laughs> you could. <laughs> it's one of the best jokes. One of the best jokes. When he comes out of the handcuffs, he goes, he goes, "Are you telling me you could have pulled your hand out of those handcuffs anytime?" And he goes. Only when it was funny. <laughs> yeah. And I love that line because it's it's like tunes are governed by a certain set of rules. Like they can't yeah. do anything. They are governed by – like they feel pain even though like they don't like die in that way. They still feel pain. Like they, they feel pain all the time <laughs> because they're so resilient. Yeah. They get they get batted around so much more. Um, but like they feel pain. They are bound by a certain, certain physics like gravity – uh, you know, they have, there's some physical things that like, act like, upon cab, them. like cab didn't like fly away 
Right. Know, like he can't. He, yeah. He, he retracted his little like. Yeah. Like, he's able to do that, but that's all he can do. Right. You know. Right. They're they're like they're created with their own boundaries in a way. Yeah. Like like Roger can't do what other certain other tunes like Bugs Bunny has his own rules, but he operates in his own rules. Yeah, they might be different than another tunes. Like Mickey Mouse Mickey, doesn't I have mean, the same. Mickey, Mickey, Mickey can't be mean. Mickey no. can't be mean. No, like he he, he was offers... close to being mean though. Well, it's Bugs that's the mean one, you know. Yeah, like... but Mickey Mickey enables it. <laughs> He's like, why, like... Why, don't you, why don't you give it to him? Huh? He knows what's gonna happen. I don't think he does. I mean, I think I think. Well, he didn't moment, seem too upset about it when it did. I think he thinks he. I think he thinks Bugs actually has a spare parachute. And he's like, why don't you give him the spare? You know, and, and then Bugs, here you go, Doc. And then Ain't I a stinker? <laughs> it couldn't be, like, Mickey could not have handed him that. No, I know, but when he falls to the ground, Mickey doesn't go like, oh, no. He's <laughs> smiling. He's still smiling. Yeah. And and Bugs is all, Ain't I a stinker? <laughs> Ain't I a stinker? But, I, so what, but I'm basically saying is these tunes are governed by a set of rules. And so one of Roger's rules is he's only able to do certain things if it's funny. Otherwise, yeah. he, can't, he can't do yeah. those things. Like, and like, like we he, have, why couldn't he? Yeah, go ahead. We have friends like that. Mm-hmm. We have a buddy named Keelan Carter whose whole life, he, he like, every choice he makes is like, it has to be a comic choice. Like, he could do things, but no. It's only when be, it's funny. Only only when it's funny, you know? So I, I love that. Yeah, that. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, what you're saying, laughter is one of our greatest tools, you know? Mm-hmm. And um i mean and then the last song the song that it plays is the as mm-hmm. we drive right off into the sunset literally uh the cartoon sunset um is smile darn you smile you know and mm-hmm. it's all the tunes singing singing that and yep and i think that's like that joy or that 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 thing in us that can can smile is what we should lead with in the world, you know. I think it, yeah, like joy. Joy can heal. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And it's joy can heal. To, it's hard to always access that, you know. But we need people that are willing to 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 remind us, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And we should not ex- we should not treat the people that are willing to poorly, mm-hmm. you know. We kind of wonder. We kind of talked about this a little bit when we were talking about when we were doing our everything everywhere all at once idea, like the Wayman character and everything everywhere all at once yeah. is like the tunes in this and that yeah. he's like, Hey, like you feel like you need to fight to survive. Like you, that's how you move through the world. You need to fight. Well, I, I choose to live through kindness. You know, that's like my, that's the way I fight, you know? Yeah. And yeah. like, that's kind of how these tunes behave. Like they fight through comedy. They fight through, you know, they, they move through the world by trying to, like, entertain, by trying to make people laugh, by trying to make people happy, bring joy. And hopefully that can heal people, you know? Yeah. Despite the fact that they themselves are being put through a lot of pain. Um, yeah. Uh, but we do see that. I think what was nice is we do see that these tunes are affected by the fact that they are put through a lot of pain. Like, we do see that tunes – some tunes are – looks like they're blissfully unaware of – of how they're being exploited. Like Dumbo seems to love those peanuts. Doesn't seem very upset about it, but like Roger very clearly feels pressure from people. Uh, But obviously Betty Boop feels disillusioned because she's, she's struggling. We see the, the weasels are being exploited. 
Um, I mean, Baby Herman's like a perfect example. Mm -hmm. You know, you look this way, so you're going to play a baby. You're always going to be the baby. I got a thirty year old. I got a thirty year old lust with a three year old dinky. You're right. He is a perfect amalgamation of the fact that like tunes are are susceptible to at least a a wear and tear of emotion of emotions. Like they're not like when you see Donald Duck, we see Daffy Duck. They're assholes. <laughs> they're not like nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. I so and I think this is great casting for Eddie Valiant. Like the guy that played him is so serious. Bob you Hoskins. Know, like he, yeah. Yeah, he's he's so serious and, and it's like and so stern. Mm. And like even when he's like breaking out of it at the end, it's not very like it's like forced, you know. Right. Right. And like he's like and like the like when he's trying to be toony, when he's trying to be loony, yeah. he's trying to clown. It is still kind of like stiff and rigid. Yeah. yeah. Which I mean, I think that happens in LA, man. Like I mean, like he's he's a perfect Angelino in that regard. You know, mm-hmm. like if you ever if you ever meet somebody that's from Los Angeles, like born and bred, grew up there, they have this like no no bullshit attitude. Like like they can smell BS a mile away and mm-hmm. they will move on. You know, like they can they can they can be very, very like they're why they're wise to it. Very street yeah, wise. Yeah, very street wise. And so like yeah, it's a it's a seriousness mm-hmm. that the people that live there have. Like, mm-hmm. no, no time for any anything. No silliness. No silliness. Mm-hmm. Just be straight with me. Speaking of no silliness, I think before we go, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Judge Judge Doom. Uh, yeah, who, the the villain of the of the film, I played by say, wonderfully played by Christopher Lloyd. By the way, yes. Oh my uh, god. If there is any dissatisfaction I have with this movie, it is that we don't get to see what he actually looks like. Mm-hmm. The, the tune that's mm-hmm. inside his, the rubber mask. Mm-hmm. And I want an explanation. Like, I want to know why this tune. That's, was- that's my, for me, for me, that's my biggest problem with this movie is there, there is no explanation as to why he do- is doing what he's doing. Uh, I, so from my understanding, the character of Judge Doom, um, who I think his name is like something Von Rotten. That's like what the character's real name is. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he looks basically like what Christopher Lloyd looks like, at least what he's been animated as after the fact. Um, just a car- fully cartooned. So I don't know okay. if like he like got like a realism paint on him or something like that. Wait, so where I don't have you know. seen this picture? Uh, there have been other like cartoon reboots and things like that of the character. Oh, okay. uh, I, I in doing my research, I saw some where he's got the really red eyes and he's got the bald head with like the little, you know, he basically looks the same okay. <laughs> as this, like a little like hooky nose and pointy, yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, like it's like, and and that's one of the reasons why I kind of push back against like the exploitation of innocence from like Hollywood in general kind of thing because for me it was this tune that was behind a lot of this. And like, even like uh, Marvin Ackman, Acme, Marvy Acme, what actually loved the tunes very much. Like he was even like kind of cartoony himself. He like loved everything tune. 
Like he was yeah. like any. He was in Ink and Paint. He loved like the little disappearing ink that's very cartoony. You know, he plays patty cake. He, he, he loves the tunes, and he was going yeah. to give them Toontown. So like, there's like a an opposite, but just because he's the exception that proves the point, almost right. Like yeah. he is an exception because like R.K. Maroon was trying to like buy the the deed to Toontown away from Mar- Marvin. Who knows what Mar- Maroon would have done with it uh, if he would have got it. Um, and, uh, so, so I don't, and, but then like the main villain of this movie is, is a tune. Yeah. So this idea that tunes are inherently innocent, I think I was trying to push back against because yeah. I think tunes can be, tunes are people. And I think that's taking their, away their, their ability to be full, full, you know, full spectrum of people, you know, like I was almost like, I, I felt like it was a little bit infantilizing of the tunes, which is weird to say, like being like, oh, you're incapable of doing anything bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Well, it's I guess it's like a dog, right? Mm-hmm. Like, again, the exception that... Well, I don't, see, I don't know if that's true, though. Because, like, a lot of times dogs' behavior is all through experience, right? Yeah. For tunes, they aren't born in that way. Like, they don't go through and experience life and change. Like, tunes are, seem like they're very unchanging I will, in that way. No, I'll, like, if, Elastic. They kind of bounce back to it. who they are. If we talk about a dog, like, like, again, like taking something innocent, making it corrupt, mm-hmm. but sometimes every once in a while, there is that tiny bit of corruption that's just not like, that's innate, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, sometimes a dog just has the wrong genes mm-hmm. and can snap at any moment, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so it's like. I mean, I think this tune is representing like the, the the tune is representing like just straight up the evil that that is that is in existence mm. that can cause uh, people to fear. He must know? be from anime, yeah, or something. <laughs> you know, but I think I think this tune again. It, we don't really learn how tunes come into existence in this world. Like if they're actually like born or if they're create yeah. like how they are created in what way or if they just like exist all of a sudden like we don't it is very unclear so like was this was this judge doom was he born or was well, he was he just created like come into existence and again, he just is evil it was again, he just created to be evil the idea of something is more important than the reality of it so like mm-hmm. he is evil he is right? evil exactly so like he he is bound by his cartoon rules, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, he evil, really, evil. He didn't even have a chance. We, evil is real. You evil know? is real. Evil is real. And even in the toon world, evil is real. Mm-hmm. So, it's interesting. And it's so, in, yeah, it is interesting because we do see some like characters that are antagonistic in cartoons. Like, Yosemite Sam is traditionally a, an antagonist. Yeah. Um, in, in, in those cartoons. But, you know, he's in this movie, he's just got a guy <laughs> who's an actor who plays himself in these cartoons. So then there is this idea of like, okay, which tunes are legit evil and which tunes only pretend to be evil for their films? Well, I think true evil is self-destructive, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's that's a perfect line, right? Because Judge Doom wants to destroy Toontown. Yeah. 
That's yeah. that's his whole goal. I we mean, don't know why. There's no motivation for it. I was that's, thinking about that's this kind of unsatisfying. Like, like if you think about our our like world state right now, you know, like mm. we've finally gotten to a place where we can kill ourselves, you know, and I think it's like okay, I'm I'm starting to draw like parallels here, like. You can't let, we can't let the circumstances and our sadness consume us so much where we let evil win, where we want to destroy ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So like, that makes me think of Robin Williams again, you know, like, and so like Russia right now has the ability to kill her, kill us, kill everybody, you know, like we could, we mm-hmm. could like destroy the whole world. And so like, isn't it strange that that we have created an ecosystem that's now like the human, like, like our, our society is like one living ecosystem that now has the capability to destroy itself. And it's Mm -hmm. like, we, I, I think it's a really cool metaphor because like there's so many different parts of your personality Mm -hmm. and parts of the self. And there is a part of yourself that, is self-destructive and it's Mm -hmm. like how do you how do you fight that and keep it from hitting that button you know Mm -hmm. and so like i think dr doom or not judge Judge doom Doom. judge doom is like a good representation of that Mm self-destructive entity yeah no i agree it's just it's that i totally agree with you that like the most unsatisfying part to me is like you don't really get get a motivation as to why Judge Doom, why he wants to do this, you know? It's just he just does because he's evil. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense because he's a toon and he was just made to be evil. And I get that that's probably what they were going for. But, like, that's unsatisfying. That just makes all this, like, a needless – Well, that's why we po- have A pointless pain and death. That's, that's why we have podcasts like this because we we can ask questions like, okay – well, why is there evil, you know? Mm-hmm. And we don't, we still don't know the answer to that. Like, mm-hmm. we can pontificate. But... It's my dad's favorite word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says I pontificate a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I guess, like, I think if you want to go from, a, from, like, an evolutionary standpoint, like, you are born and, like, the your body and your mind on the simplest level is survive and procreate. Yeah. yeah. Right. Survive and procreate. And as our world has become more p- complicated, the idea of survival and, and the way we react to stuff hits that, those base instincts, that lizard brain, right. It, it hits it in weird ways. For example, like when a writer is getting notes from somebody, like you turn in a script and like someone is giving you notes, your brain literally thinks that you're going to die when you get a note, when you get, when you get a bad note about something that you wrote, because you're being, you put out something very vulnerable and someone's saying that that they don't like it or that it's bad. Your brain is like, I'm dying, I'm dying. And it activates that, that lizard brain fight or flight or freeze instinct. It goes back to this basic instinct of something's attacking me. I'm going to die. Even though logically, you know that's not true. You're not in any danger. 
some things just hit your your lizard brain in that way. And I feel like it goes the same thing with like survival, like greed. Some people greed is survival, right? It mm-hmm. is the desire to be the apex of your of your environment. And so like wanting more resources, being the most powerful, having the most influence for a lot of people is like super instinctual. And I think we see that with like children because children are very egocentric. Yeah. Like not on purpose. It's just, it's naturally there. You only experience the world through your own perception. So mine, that is mine. That's mine. I want that. That's mine. It is base. I think it is basic human nature to want everything for yourself. Yeah. And we only learn socially to get let go of that later. But I don't know if that answers – I think that answers the – Well, the I think bias. those things Those things, when not – when you don't socially acclimate, those things become evil tendencies. I, I want everything yeah. for myself. Right. I think those are the biological explanations of – well, that's what I'm saying. If we take yeah. if we take the the the, the but, evolutionary scientific biology of it, but I mean, philosophy. If you take if you think about it from a philosophical standpoint, mm-hmm. then not my forte. You go for it. <laughs> well, from a philosophical standpoint, it's I think it's more like your belief that you are alone mm-hmm. and that you must do you, that. It's up to you to survive. Mm-hmm. And the belief that there is nothing outside you, of you to you help. must you must take you must take yours it's up to you you yeah. know which I, I so to me like the there comes to like a philosophical core of like you have to believe that there is more than you mm-hmm. and you have to want to support more than you you can take that even to a theological place if you if you yeah. so choose right I mean well that I mean they're very connected and uh. Yeah, I, I think because like when you know evil, when you see evil, you know it. It's weird. It's not like it's not like oh, it's not this cold thing that I mean it is cold, but like it's not this cold thing where you just look at it and, and it doesn't affect you. You know, it it does affect you in like this weird like like because if it was just biological, it wouldn't offend us. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like it doesn't make sense that it would upset us to watch a freaking shoe get melted mm-hmm. that makes no sense okay <laughs> i would I, I would again this is this is my like my history and my education in, in like science would be it's social conditioning right we yeah. we're socially conditioned to empathize but, but to understand others people. emotion but children you're right there isn't there is an inherent I think the human mind does look for connection. I mean, like, again, yeah. we're, we come from a line of primates. Pack mentality, group mentality is, is wired into us. The idea of working in, a, in large groups for survival is also in there. You hurt something in front of a kid, that kid's going to get really upset. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? Like, no, you're right. Empathy is, like, one of those psychological things where it's, like, it is wired in there, but it's like, why over over long periods of evolution, like like certain certain species developed an understanding of of like working together, and like the 
a group is stronger than an individual. But not but but what's funny is not all creatures across all all of the animal kingdom have discovered that. And it's not and again, it's not true for all creatures. You know, like certain animals that are very solitary could not exist in a group. Like spiders. Yeah. There's no reason to cooperate for a spider. Yeah. They're very highly efficient by themselves. You know? And so like I think what I think that's for me, that's where I connect to your your idea of like philosophically. Some people are 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 built different in a way. Some people are are wired differently. Some people are wired to be more predisposed to empathizing and some people aren't. You know, I mean, even just like, again, on a scientific level, there's sociopathy, there's psychopathy, there's, there's other kinds of, of mental uh, and cognitive disorders that cause people to feel things in different ways and process life in different ways. And I think that changes the way that then you then respond to things. Some people say, you're right. Some people just have a predisposition. It's nature versus nurture, right? Which is yeah. the prevailing. And it's always a mixture. Some people are born one way and are nurtured to be a different way. Some people are born one way and are cannot be nurtured at all. Some people are nurtured fully and change. You know, it's, it's hard to say. It's impossible yeah. to say. Well, we're, we're getting, we're boiling down to like, our base conversation here is like, Mm -hmm. why is there anything, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and so like, if you remove science from the equation, not that science is removed from the equation ever totally, Mm -hmm. but like at some point science can't know, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And, and the thing about science is what you think, you know, is rarely ever exactly what's going on. And that's why science is constantly changing. You know, the more you learn, the more like the fundamentals of the universe change. You know, medicine is a great example of that where like just five years ago, everyone's like, this is the way you do this thing. And like, you know, because of more studies and more this and more that, we learn. It's like, okay, that's actually not the way to do that. There's a better way to do that. And it, and people get frustrated about that. And they, they think like, oh, science doesn't know anything because they keep changing their mind. It's like, it's not that science is changing their mind. It's science is learning more and it changes based on the given information. Yeah. So like, so like, you're right. Like science can't know everything. The whole thing about science is you is you know you can't know everything, so you have to keep looking for more yeah. information. But because you are, can't, you can't, it can't be concrete. But we know that evil has been around since the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. and so I don't know. I, I for me, like you, we, you can you can find biological reasons, but eventually you're going to be outside of the realm of science. Mm-hmm. And so like, to me, human nature, there is something that has a knowledge of these things. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting when you try to like parse through it to like, how do you, what do you do to prevent that evil from taking hold? Mm-hmm. You know, this, this movie would say you, you fight it with laughter and joy. Smile, Don, you smile. You know? So uh, I think that is a great place to end our conversation today. A little bit longer than we usually go, just a, just yeah. a few minutes, not too much longer, but a pretty great conversation. Great choice, Seth. Very nice. Thank you, Tara. So it's time to talk about what's next. Wait, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a new movie came out recently uh, called The Northman. 
which oh. is written, written and directed by Robert Eggers, who's I want to see it really been, bad. Been on a roll as far as his filmmaking. He's been pretty great. Um, so I would love to really change gears from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, from George of the Jungle, from <laughs> Pain and Gain type stuff, and really yeah. go into something a little bit more macabre, a little bit more, I'm a little bit more uh, dreary. Uh, so I would love it if we could watch uh, 2013, no, 2015's The Witch. Which oh. is Robert Eggers' oh. first movie. This is like maybe one of my favorite horror films. Yeah, this a, this movie is straight up my alley. Yeah, in terms of horror, like, it's a phenomenal I'm like, film. I'm not a huge horror person, but this movie is like one of my favorite films because, like, if, if horror does it right, horror is the best genre. Mm-hmm. Like, in my opinion. Oh, well, I think it's like we talked about horror is something that everybody being afraid is something that everybody understands. Yeah. And and when horror, you're right, when horror does it right and it's good, it everybody gets it. Yeah. Like I get it. Uh, So we're going to be watching 2015's The Witch. For those of you watching along at home, you can find The Witch on the Roku channel. You can find it on FUBU TV, Amazon Prime, Showtime, all with uh, subscriptions. You can. Watch it without subscriptions on Vudu, on Apple TV, on YouTube, on Google Play. Uh, so there are lots of places for you to be able to check out this movie. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, this little dreary film called The Witch. Uh, Seth, uh, go ahead shout yourself out. Where can people find you? What's What's been going on with you? Uh, yeah, I'm the Birdie Word on Twitter. So that's T-H-E-B-R-D-Y. W O R D on Twitter. I'm also Seth Adam Crow on Instagram. Uh, I have a podcast that I need to get back on. It's called The Crowcast. Uh, it's two words: the and then Crowcast. C R O W E C A S T. You can find that on Spotify and Apple Music. Um, yeah, that's really all I got going on right now. Awesome. And I'm Ricardo Blade Diaz. You can find my personal uh, uh, social medias at Ricardo Blade Diaz on both Instagram and TikTok. That is R-I-C-A-R-D-O-B-L-A-Y-D-E-D-I-A-Z. That is my full name, all one word, at TikTok and Instagram. And you can find both Seth and I on our Dungeons and Dragons show, which is at Character Player. You can find us at Character Player on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and Twitch. That is Character Player, C-H-A-R-A-C-T-E-R, space P-L-A-Y-E-R, Character Player. Uh, thank you so much, for everybody, for listening. And if you're watching along, let us know what you might want to see us do in the future, what movies you guys want to hear us talk about. Get involved in the conversation. What do you guys think of uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and what you might be thinking it's about, both on a social level uh, and both on a personal level. We would love to hear what you guys think. Please let us know. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. That's all, folks. Brilliant.